Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne Center for Intergenerational Care, USIRIS Campus in Milwaukee. This April 2017 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation focusing on the epidemic of prescription opioid abuse in our community and across our nation. Our guest presenter is Dr. Robert Hurley, Professor and Vice Chairman, Department of Anesthesiology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Director of the Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin's Comprehensive Pain Program. Here now is Dr. Robert Hurley. Thank you very much. There's a number of things that I certainly want to talk about, but one of the things I want to start with, normally when I give a talk, I give a quick disclosure slide, basically lists anyone I've gotten research funding from or uh, what sort of research I'm doing, do I get pharmaceutical money, NIH money, etc. Um, the answer to that is it's all federal money, but the the other component of the disclosure that I give to this talk in particular is the disclosure that everything that I'm going to say, yes, is based on my education, my experience, et cetera, but doesn't represent anyone other than myself. I give that disclosure because some of the things that I say may or may not sound controversial or may be controversial. I don't know which it may be, um, but I just want you to know that I'm speaking for myself, not CTSI, MCW, or Freighter. Why I say that is I'm a pain physician, and... Um, Pain is looked upon very differently. I've been doing this for, I've been doing pain research for 22 years now, and I've been doing clinical pain medicine for about 15. And um, being a pain physician when I started, people were like, oh, that's really interesting. That's kind of nice that you're taking care of people's pain, so on and so forth. Um, in the last three years, it's now, um, most people go, oh, you're one of those. Um, and that sort of gets to the point of sort of the shift in sort of approach to pain medicine, because pain medicine has suddenly become equated with opioid-related care. And the two are not necessarily the same. Opioids are a common treatment strategy for especially acute or post-surgical pain or um, injuries that are expected to resolve quickly. They're less beneficial for long-term pain or persistent pain, the type of pain that people have for 20 years, their low back pain, et cetera. And so one of the challenges is, how did we go from a situation of pain being something that was in the early 80s, not treated um, very closely? It's sort of more of a suck it up, you'll be fine, the pain will go away with time to the mid-90s, where there was a very large shift in the approach to pain care, which was everybody needs to be treated, and we need to get the pain as close to zero as possible, meaning pain is not a normal part of life, and we sort of got away from that. So I'm not saying either continuum is actually correct, meaning under-treating pain, um, or what we would argue currently is over-treating it with aspects of certain medications. An example I often give in medical school classes and various other places is in the, um, in the early 80s, if you were to ask physicians or medical students, how much pain do you think a child has if they're being injured in any sort of fashion, surgery, or anything, when they can't speak? 
the very odd answer you would get is, well, none, because they can't say any. And it's just a bizarre logic, but think of where we were starting from. That's not that long ago, like 37 years ago or so, is really not a terribly long time frame. So we were coming from the mentality of children in pain weren't even being treated. Moved forward to now everybody needs to um, be treated and completely have their pain removed. So my argument and the thesis of this discussion is really there probably is some happy medium in there. We're certainly not there at this point. So how did we go from the treatment of pain, and we'll just assume for the moment or the purposes of this discussion that pain treatment is an opioid in this case. How did we go from very little opioid use to a great deal of opioid use and then take it a couple steps further? How did we move to the epidemic that we certainly have now? You can call it a crisis, you can call it an epidemic, it doesn't really matter which. Um, we often have discussions with people of, is it an epidemic or not? So I'll try and give a reference point for everybody. Something that everyone considered to be an epidemic and one of the greatest healthcare crises of modern um, medicine is HIV AIDS. So in 1995, the peak number of people dying from HIV AIDS um, was in the order of 30 to 40,000 people. In 2015, 52,000 people died from an opioid-related overdose. So I, I'm not sure there's actually that much of an argument that this is an epidemic that we're facing and probably needs the resources dedicated to it in a similar level to what was dedicated to HIV-AIDS. One of the other aspects of it is, in this epidemic, we've got a few populations here. So I'm a pain physician, I'm not an addiction physician, I'm not an addiction medicine physician. So I tend to look at things maybe a little bit differently than an addiction medicine doc. I look at a lot of patients with pain and painful conditions that are um, either under our care or other people's care as people with the potential for having a problem associated with an opioid. If the opioid is used inappropriately, and I don't mean the patient is using it inappropriately, but if it is given to a patient where the opioid clearly is not going to be beneficial. So we look at what we do as trying to prevent the next person having an opioid-related misuse uh, problem, addiction, you can call it if, that, if that's what you wish. So we have tried to provide other therapies for a person's pain that may be more directed to their pain-related problem than an opioid. Because one of the things about opioids, many of our patients will say, it, it treats my pain or it fixes the problem. The challenge with that is the medication is like a Band-Aid at best. It covers up the pain for a very short period of time. The other aspect that it does cover up is many of the other aspects of pain. So chronic pain is not just a medical condition. There absolutely are medical problems associated with people having pain. But when you talk about a person that has pain 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, just for a moment, imagine one of the most common pains that we all have, a headache. Imagine what you would feel like if you had that all the time. You'd probably be pretty grumpy. You would probably be pretty depressed. You might isolate yourself socially. What I'm describing is the common pain, chronic pain patient. So you add then a medication that 
partially helps the pain, covers it up for a short period of time, but one thing that it does almost every time is actually remove your ability to actually care that your life kind of stinks right now. You've lost your friends because you hurt all the time. You're a grump and you're depressed. The challenge with that is the opioid, at the same time, it helps, quote unquote, helps with that because it allows the person not to worry about that. It also causes depression and worsens anxiety disorders. So you actually are giving that person something that is actually making them worse in both the short and the long term. And there are other medications that are much more appropriate for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and there's many other health strategies that are appropriate for depression, anxiety, and various other conditions, psychological measures, et cetera. So if you sort of try to boil down why did this problem occur now in the United States, we are a little bit different from other countries, um, and I'll get to that in a second. But if you sort of boil it down, how did this start? There's many different rationale. We'll start with the premise that it began a bit because physicians, clinicians were not managing pain well. So back to that analogy of resources going to um, the sort of research, development, treatment, et cetera, of HIV AIDS. And this is not to lessen the importance of HIV. But if you look at that comparison, the amount of money that went to the NIH to look at that crisis and handle it compared to what is going to it for um, opioid-related problems, the amount of resources that went to the NIH for this problem is minuscule. The challenge is how does one actually treat what we now recognize as a problem, meaning pain, but with ineffective tools and ineffective medications. You're gonna use the best available. Best available was primarily morphine. Then you add to it all the sort of financial challenges of medications. You've got pharmaceutical companies that now make a profit on that medication. You combine that with miseducation, but in this sense, I don't mean in a sort of pejorative sense, but the medical education through the 80s and 90s had a common, common quote that was used for in teaching uh, medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students about pain. Patients with pain don't become addicted to an opioid. And that was based, and they would quote it as the, the number is about 1% or less than 1% people would become addicted. The challenge with that was the data for that was not a large study. It was two persons' experience in one hospital seeing 1,000 patients after surgery. So does that sound anything like a person with chronic low back pain that's using it for 10 years in a row? No. So dispelling that idea took 15 years past the publication of that letter to the editor. It wasn't even a paper. It happened to go into the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a big deal. So people sort of thought it had some merit to it, but it didn't. Many of us would like sort of things to be fixed quickly or instantly in some cases. Um, in our clinic, we sort of talk about it as the magic surgery or the magic pill. Like you've had 15 years of chronic low back pain, but today is the day you would like it fixed and you'd like it fixed permanently. The challenge is there is no such solution. And we sort of um, ask for those types of solutions. 
You combine that with the common medical visit being anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes long with your physician if you're lucky. Um, chronic pain usually takes a longer discussion about what's going on and how to treat it. Oftentimes the answer was, well, here's a prescription for Vicodin or Percocet, as opposed to having the longer discussion of, well, we need to treat your depression, your anxiety, as well as these, medic these other um, pain-related complaints. So that sort of adds in another issue. So that's a bit of the why is that now? Why is it the US? So why I say that? Um, there are three or four countries um, that use similar amounts of opioids, prescription opioids, as the United States. Um, with the exception of one of them, which is Estonia, I don't really know why, um, no one has the death rate even remotely similar to the United States for opioid um, overdose. So we were like three to four times the next highest country, which is Canada. Um, so why is it our country that is very different? The question, though, is what can we do about it? What can you sort of leave here today and actually make a change that would have an impact on our greater community? And it, it goes to where do people find the medications that they use that they misuse in this case, or illicitly use, or sell, or et cetera. The answer to that is the vast majority, so we're talking well over 50% of the illicitly used prescription opioids come from our own medicine cabinets. So they are not necessarily you, it's your medicine cabinet, and you take it and sell it or misuse it. But one of the most common ones is it's coming from a family member. So you have a child, a parent, a cousin, whomever, going into your medicine cabinet, taking that Vicodin that you got from your dentist six years ago when you had a tooth extracted, and you just never got rid of that medicine. And believe me, I'm just as guilty as probably everybody else. Um, not with an opioid, but with other medications. Is that sits in your cabinet. So we have patients that um, have had their homes robbed. The people that have stolen things have left their safe alone, have left jewelry sitting on a dresser, but have immediately taken every single thing out of the medicine cabinet because that opioid now is worth more on the street than that jewelry and that other stuff that the, you would try to sell. So the one thing that we say that can be done very quickly is get rid of any of old or expired medicines or those that you are not using. And that would include an opioid, but the other challenging ones that we're not talking about as much are the benzodiazepines, Valium, Xanax, those types of medicines. Get rid of those as well. The quick question is, where do you get rid of those types of medications? That's one thing about our state that is actually quite a bit ahead of other states is a lot of the police departments have drop boxes for them now. Some of our pharmacies do. If anyone ever wants to figure out where you find a site, because not all police, office, uh, police stations have them, the Dose of Reality campaign, it's um, just www.doseofreality, and then unfortunately some Wisconsin.org in there. But if you Google search Dose of Reality, you can actually do the location finder to find where to actually drop those off. And that 
is when you look at the graphs of where the sources come from, the next most common is doctor shopping, meaning a patient that goes to multiple physicians within usually a few day period, because you can beat the PDMP system, which is sort of the pharmacy check system on opioids, if you see a bunch of doctors within a two day period and get a bunch of prescriptions and fill them. That's the second most common, and that's like one-tenth of the medication that's actually coming out of a person's cabinet. So one of the ways you reduce the opioid-related epidemic is actually reduce the supply of the opioids, and that does not mean we stop prescribing for patients that truly need the opioid and are appropriate for an opioid at an appropriate dose and so forth, but actually getting rid of the supply that's not being used appropriately by prescription, et cetera. So that's just one of the points. There's many other things, and I'm hoping we can talk about that. But I just wanted to give you a very brief flavor of some of the things that I want people to think about, and I'm happy to answer any questions, comments, or otherwise. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on uh, municipalities and cities and counties suing uh, opioid uh, distributors in their role in flooding their markets in this area. And, oh, in flooding markets. Yeah, so um, there are many, many, many cases. Chicago has a few. New Jersey has a bunch. New York has zillions um, where they are actually going after Purdue Pharmaceuticals and two or three other ones. Um, Purdue in 2007 um, had to pay a $600 million fine to um, essentially our government because um, of the inappropriate advertising, advertising that people aren't going to get addicted to OxyContin, that was their product and still is, um, as well as other things. So let's take one or two steps back. The most expensive medical condition in the United States for both normal medical care and sort of time away from work is chronic pain. It costs on the order of $635 billion, with a B, dollars per year. Cancer is 200 billion. Diabetes is about 150 billion. The second most expensive condition in the United States is addiction. It's 400 billion dollar um, cost to all of us um, per year. So when I look at a 600 million dollar fine for and obviously the 400 billion includes many other medications and alcohol and various other things you're talking about a large cost that's not being recouped. The challenge is how do you decide who is at fault for that? Um, I think certainly Purdue and some of the others had definitely deceptive marketing. So from that standpoint, I think that is perfectly fine to um, go after them for that. Um, the challenge is they're going after them in a manner that is primarily going to benefit the attorney as opposed to the county. So if it were less of sort of a class action thing where just a lot of money is spread over many, many people so everyone gets a tiny little bit, that's, I think, a little less effective. Um, if one could tie the damages gained to effective programs for the treatment of the individuals that were harmed, I think that would be okay. I'm not, I generally am not terribly a litigious person but that is, I think, in this case, for those, for those manufacturers, they certainly were not above board. Go ahead. My son is a little boy, was diagnosed ADHD, and he became a drug addict, mm -hmm. and he died last year. 
there is a theory that children who took these drugs and became drug addicts. I wonder mm -hmm. if there's any research about this. Um, specifically the question of ADHD and Ritalin or Adderall. I'm not aware of any research on that specifically as it relates to opioid-related misuse, et cetera, onto overdose. However, one of the things that I can say is there is a literature, and it's a strong literature, of patients with any psychiatric condition, ADHD, depression, anxiety, any mood-related disorder, are at um, substantially higher likelihood of being put on an opioid, if they complain of pain or anything along those lines, they are also at significantly higher risk of misuse and overdose. Whether that is related to being on medications as a child or the reason they're on the medication as a child, I can't answer. He was able to get medications from Europe, mail order, and obviously he didn't know what he was taking from a foreign country. One of the very scary things, especially about the opioid epidemic right now, is Milwaukee just had its first carfentanil death. It, you want to talk about a scary drug? This drug, if we were to just basically grab a couple little grams of it and sprinkle it throughout this entire building, all of us would pass away. It is in that powerful. So there's fentanyl, which is powerful. This is 10,000 times more. Yes? I'm just amazed. I mean, literally I agree, there certainly is a problem in many communities. There's a couple challenges associated with um, patients of advanced age. Um, the challenge in this is kidneys and liver don't function as well. So about six or seven years ago, one of the major medical organizations in internal medicine put out a guideline paper, sort of a best practices paper, that said in patients over the age of, and I'm sorry if I'm going to misquote the age, but it was either 65 or 70, and I don't remember which, the risk associated with using medications like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which would be naproxen, Aleve, aspirin, etc., vastly outweigh the risk of using an opioid. So the, the challenge with that is, one, that data I don't actually believe is correct. Um, the other component is many physicians reading that best practice, because best practice sometimes, um, if you deviate from best practice, you get sued. So people will lean towards, well, this very large professional society has recommended doing this, so they're going to prescribe an opioid instead. One of the things that we know about opioids is everyone becomes tolerant to them. The only thing that does not go away with an opioid is constipation. The tolerance issue, it, the example I have is um, I took over a large practice that had um, a lot of patients on high-dose opioids. And I would ask all, a lot of these people, and a lot of them, frankly, were um, 65 and over, and they were on a gram of morphine three times a day. To give you perspective, um, 30 milligrams of morphine, if you're not taking an opioid, would probably make you somewhat catatonic. A gram of morphine is a massive amount. I asked them, how did you get there? 
Because, like, it seems like a rather unusual dose. And the answer was, like, when did this start? Ah, about 15 years ago. Okay, what was the pain problem then? You know, I have no idea. I just hurt everywhere. And these are the people that hurt head to toe. And we, we run a pretty large weaning program where we try and bring people down from those doses down to hopefully what is more reasonable. Um, and what we found is, one, it really stinks to wean down from those doses for about a six-month period. Um, and then after that, usually we get thank you cards because people actually feel a lot better. The interesting thing is in a whole group of these patients that had head-to-toe pain, they actually said um, all this other, like their headaches are gone, their back pain is gone, and now they're back to that original problem that they had 15 years ago, which in this one particular patient I'm thinking of was her knee. She has knee osteoarthritis and just couldn't get a knee replacement for whatever reason. Her doc 15 years ago started her on Vicodin and then increased it and then increased it and that stopped working so they went to Oxycontin. That stopped working so they went to fentanyl patches. That stopped working so they went to methadone, blah, 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 on down the line. So you look at this accumulation of problems and this also goes back to why are some of these docs doing that? Again, I... With the exception of the uh, the docs that we're talking about here, I think it's not done for malice. It's done for just not knowing what else you can do um, or not having drugs that are available to use uh, use in these patients. And that's not to let people off the hook because I don't think there is any excuse for the extremely high doses that I see. Um, An example I give people, very common condition high blood pressure. There are many different types of medications one can use for high blood pressure. So if you were a patient and you walk into your doctor's office and you have an exceedingly high blood pressure, they start you on a drug called metoprolol. We'll just go with that as an example. And your blood pressure, the next time they see you, is just as high if not higher. So they increase the dose. At some point when you come back every month and your blood pressure is still sky high, you ditch the metoprolol and say the drug's not working. Why is that not the case for an opioid? The answer is once you get to a certain dose where every drug receptor for the opioid in your body is saturated, there is no point giving you more opioid because all you get is the side effects. And then you start to get to the euphoria and the other reasons why people would take the opioid. I don't have the answer of why some physicians do what they do. I can suggest that some of it is education. At even the best medical schools, there is about two hours of medical school education in a four-year curricula devoted to pain. Pain is the number one reason why patients present to the emergency room. The number one medical diagnosis in any hospital system that you look at but we don't teach very much about pain physiology, and we teach almost nothing other than opioid pharmacology. And I'm a pharmacologist, and my entire PhD is on opioids, so I like teaching that, but again, the point is that may not be the ideal medication to use or approach to take with our patients. So some of it, I would argue, is education, and that's one thing we can do something about. Yes? She, I believe, has been put on opioids. I was wondering what some 
So there's a few things. Predicting who is at risk for an opioid use disorder, and I just use that term instead of addiction, you will be as good as I am at predicting that. And that's the unfortunate part about the literature now, is we all used to think, oh yeah, we're really good at guessing. No, we're all terrible at guessing it. Because I've actually had friends with addiction disorders and didn't notice. Um, people are really, really, really good at hiding it. When you finally figure out that they're unable to hide it, it's usually because they're stealing your stuff. Yes. This is not part of HOPE, but this is in the budget somewhere. With the Governor's Opioid Task Force, one of the big asks out of that task force was further funding for some of the successful pilot programs that are going on in some of the counties of Wisconsin. We have a system that's already set up to do psychiatric counseling. We're asking for money to expand that to include addiction counseling. So it's a step. Is it all the way? No, not at all. But it's something that we're trying to do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of CTSI Science Cafe, brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and recorded live at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and to improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember, like the CTSI on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Bellmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.